0: open
1: if you would to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15. It's but a step from the sublime to the ridiculous. And certainly that's true as you come off the song of the sea and you read this starting at verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went into the wilderness of Shur and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Bitterness, or Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them and said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees, so they camped there by the waters. Let's pray. Father, We ask that we would not let the root of bitterness grow up. Show us in this text the bad attitude, the bad attitude that you despise and condemn, and the good attitude that you want your people to have. Lord, we thank you that you purified the waters and that you brought Israel to a place of blessing after testing them. So help us to be ready not to anger you at Massa and Maraba, but rather to submit to you, to glorify you in our hearts, to know you as Lord and Savior, and the one to whom we are grateful. Help me to speak boldly and accurately what's in this text, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are three grumblings here in Exodus 15, 16, and 17. So we'll be on the theme of grumbling this week and the next two weeks. And then there are three more grumblings in Numbers after they leave Sinai. Numbers 14, 16, and 17 also all contain instances of grumbling. That's the only six uses of grumbling in the Pentateuch. Uh, In other words, coming to Sinai, leaving Sinai, it's framed by the people having a bad attitude and starting to complain. So if you think, what did the people do in the wilderness? I certainly thought, well, they complained all the time. Well, actually, across 40 years, they complained half a dozen times. Most of us would feel like we were doing pretty well. Well, I've only complained five times in the last 35 years. I think I have the right to one or two more gripe sessions. But God takes those six grumblings and he puts them front and center so that when we think Israel in the wilderness, we think a bunch of crybabies, whiners, grumblers. Why? Because this is a serious sin. Gripe sessions are all too common. Venting our grievances. And we all know people who are really, really good at complaining where when you see the phone ring and it's their number, you say, oh, I'm in for it now. We also know other people where when the phone rings, you say, wow, I'm going to be encouraged. I'm going to be built up. This person is not going to tell me all the horrible things that are going wrong and how they can't stand so-and-so and what their boss did and what their spouse did and what their kid did and on and on and on and on. Well, God's people then and unfortunately today We're given to grumbling. God is telling us, stop grumbling, be thankful. Thanksgiving is the opposite of grumbling. And of course, this passage highlights that obedience is the opposite of grumbling. God hears their grumbling, and he responds, first of all, by giving them water, but also by making a rule and testing their obedience to that rule. God responds to grumbling, not by saying, okay, fine, I will change so you don't have to complain about me. He responds to grumbling by saying, here's a rule, obey all rules. Here's a test, will you obey the rule I just made? Life with God is not about getting whatever you want. Life with God is about doing whatever He wants. So let's look at this text and see God's rule, God's test, and God's provision. So Moses leads Israel from the Red Sea. Interesting. Right? Obviously, the pillar and cloud of fire are leading them. But verse 22 highlights that it was Moses who brought Israel away from the Red Sea. Now, he was just following the cloud and fire. But he doesn't throw this one onto God. Yeah, it was Moses. Moses, who leads them away. The singing and dancing by the sea, that was real. And within three days, the endless walk through the desert feels pretty real, too. It doesn't take long to come off a spiritual high. Some of you may have read Rudyard Kipling's poem, Boots, 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 we're marching across Africa. And then there's a lot more in that same vein. Africa is the second largest continent, and by the time you're done with that poem, you're eating dust, and you can feel. Well, that's how the people of Israel were. They're in this little territory, the Sinai Peninsula. It's not very big. But when you're on foot with no water, it starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the grumbling begins. They came to Mara. Water. We've made it three days without water, and now we see water, and they instantly go to the water, and it's undrinkable. The situation is at the boiling point, and in fact, it boils over. They call the place bitterness because the water is so bad that even after three waterless days in the desert, you can't stomach it. And that's when the people grumbled against Moses. All the people murmured. They start to complain. Now, in one sense, it's futile to spend much time describing what complaining is because the fact is we all know what it is. Complaining is different from pointing out a legitimate problem. We all know that. And we all like to say that whatever we're doing is the good side of it. It's legitimate saying, hey Moses, this water is no bueno. Now, by the time the 6th or 800th individual came to Moses and pointed that out, Moses probably was saying, yeah, you are not motivated by the desire to point out a legitimate problem and seek a fair-minded solution. You have a bad attitude. That's the difference between complaining and recognizing a legitimate problem is the difference between a bad attitude and a good attitude. Bad attitude is saying there's a problem and I deserve for this problem to go away. I deserve water. I deserve something better than what I got. There's no sausage I didn't get a raise. Whatever you want to complain about. And people can find virtually anything to complain about. The Wi-Fi is slow on my transatlantic flight. You can find anything because the complaint doesn't have its origin in the world. And in an objectively bad situation, the complaint has its origin in the grumpy human heart. So the people start to complain. The good attitude is one that's fundamentally committed to the Lord and says, Lord, I trust you. It's the attitude of Peter, sound asleep in his prison cell, saying, well, Herod's going to bring me out and kill me in the morning, but I trust God, so I'll lay down in peace and sleep. Psalm 4. The bad attitude is fundamentally upset with the Lord. Saying, Lord, you won't come through this time. This time you've bitten off more than you can chew. This time you put me in a bad situation. And I don't appreciate it. And I'm going to let you know how much I don't appreciate it. Whether it's relating to your health, your family situation, your pets, your job, name it. Good attitude is an attitude of faith and gratitude. The bad attitude is an attitude that is angry with God and does not trust Him to provide. And of course, Israel could say, well, trust doesn't come into it. We tried the water. It's bad. We are not, lack of trust in God is nothing to do with this. God gave us bad water. And so He's going to hear about it. but actually that's still lack of trust in God. That's lack of obedience to God because God gave them bad water for a reason. No. So how does God respond? Well, first, he does provide what they need. Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. Moses, tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. God has power To heal the waters. Of course, the church fathers loved this. Oh, the waters of bitterness, the bitterness of sin. You take the wood of the cross and you add that to the world. The death of Christ. and Sin is taken away and the water is made sweet. It could be a good illustration. But that's not why God showed Moses the tree. Rather, God is saying, I have the ability to give you what you want. Or or rather, I have the ability to give you what you need. You do need water. Here's water. God doesn't provide everything we want, but he does provide what we need. If you need water in order to live, God will give you water so you can live. Or he will withhold it and let you die, depending on what his larger purpose is. Now, his purpose was to bring Israel out of Egypt. He wanted them alive, so he gave them water. But God has not promised any one of us, I guarantee that you will live till your 95th birthday. And anything you need to get there, I will give you. Just not the case. God gives you what you need, and he decides what you need. He's the final arbiter of your needs. If you need water so you can physically live, he'll give you water. If you need to die and go to heaven and be with him, He'll give you that. But he's the one who decides what our needs are. That's the secret of contentment. Trusting that if I need it, God will give it to me. And if God hasn't given it to me, it's because he doesn't think I need it. It's not an easy lesson to learn, but it's the lesson of Mara. Who's the final arbiter of your needs? Are you or is God? Attitude that says, God, I must have this food. I must have this amount of money. I must have that romantic relationship. I must have this many people in my church. I must have this or that is the attitude of Israel at Mara. Sure, we have legitimate needs. Without certain things, we will die. Absolutely. But God is the one that we entrust ourselves to, and he's the one who decides whether we live, whether we die, whether we're married, whether we're single, whether we're healthy or sick, and we have to entrust ourselves to him. So God responds not just by providing them with what they wanted, what they needed, but he also there made a statute and an ordinance for them the text says. He makes a rule. And I agree with those who say this should be translated. There he made a binding rule for them. So statute and ordinance means a binding ordinance. He made a rule for them and it was a binding rule. The rule is obey all rules. The rule is here's how you live with God. You do what he says. That's why the text doesn't say what the or- ordinance is. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them. There he tested them and said, and what he says is the content of the binding ordinance. If you heed the voice of the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes, all his statutes. So four different ways of saying the same thing, which is obey all rules. This is the secret of, of life with God. Not a two-hour quiet time every morning. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's not what he says. If you all would read your Bible every morning for an extra hour, no, the rule is, obey me. Do what I tell you. That's the binding judgment. And so he describes it in four different ways. Heed my voice. Do what's right in my sight. Give ear to my commandments. Keep my statutes. So, two ways of describing it with the ear. You listen, you heed. Two ways of describing actions. You do what's right. You keep my statutes. That's the rule. That's the basics of the Christian life. As God brings them through the sea, he then says, here's the deal. Israel, if we're going to walk together, if we're going to go through the wilderness together, there's one very simple thing you need to know. I'm in charge. I will tell you what you are going to do. And that's the basic rule of the Christian life. Sometimes easier when the Lord says, you're going to go through the Red Sea and I will defeat the Egyptians. That's relatively easy to run away from the chariots and horsemen of Pharaoh. But when he says, you're going to go through the desert and not have any water. Well, that's where it gets a little harder. A lot harder. So God makes this rule and says, Obey me. And then he tests how they'll keep that rule. There he tested them. Now, what does that mean? This is a little bit baffling, and commentators wrestle with this, and we all wrestle with this. Does it mean that God tested them before he made the rule? That is, he led them into a situation where they would be tempted. And sure enough, they gave in to temptation and complained. And so God responded to the complaining with a rule that said, do what I tell you. Or is it the other way around? The order in which it's presented, he made them the binding ordinance, obey me. And then he tested them. And I think it's the latter. The latter. They're at Marah, they sinned, they complained. He provided for them, and God responded after providing them for them by saying, here's the deal. Obey my voice, keep my statutes, do what's right in my sight, walk in my laws, and then, once they hear that, then he tests them. What's the test? Well, the test is whether they will do that. Will they start to obey? And what's not stated is that they did, because they have the reward of obedience then in the last verse. Then they came to Elam, 12 springs of water, and 70 palm trees. God says, Here's the rule for life in the wilderness. Will you obey me? Or will you keep complaining? They obey, and then God provides what they want. And He takes them to Elam, and essentially says, here's the reward of obedience. This is what life with God looks like. The perfect number of wells, 12. The perfect number of palm trees, 70. This is what you need. So he made the rule, then tested them as to how comprehensively they would keep it, and he put a promise with the rule. I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians. The first promise to those who keep God's law is this promise of health. You won't suffer from the diseases of the Egyptians. Now that tied the commentators in knots, and several of them affirmed, oh yes, Egypt was the, one of the sickest places in the whole world. You want to find sick people? right? It's the elementary school of the Mediterranean. You go there, and everyone there is sick. But then Herodotus, the Greek author, he travels to Egypt and he says, Egypt is the healthiest country I've ever been to. Everyone there is just bouncing with good health. So other commentators quote that one and say, we're not sure why God says I won't put the Egyptian diseases on you. Others say, no, duh, the Egyptian diseases are the ten plagues. Like boils and lice and the rest of the things that befell them. God says, I won't plague you like I plagued Egypt. We're in- or- Origen tried to just cut the knot and say, no, the Egyptian sickness is love of the world. The Egyptians are all about money, power, this world, the world to come and their conception, King Tut's tomb. Whichever of those you take, right, the upshot is the same. God will keep you healthy if you obey Him. That is, God will protect you from being struck by disease. And there's easy ways to see this. If you want to be sick, disobey your parents, indulge in the sin of gluttony, take drugs, and before long, you'll be as sick as you could ever hope to be. And if you obey God, you will have the obedience that brings help. Because, and God reveals His name there, This is the book of the knowledge of God, and God says, My name is Jehovah Rapha. Or Yahweh healer. I, the Lord God, am I the Lord who heals you? God is the one who gives health. Just like he's the one who gives water. Just like he's the one who gives relaxation and rest at Elam. Just like he's the one who gives deliverance from Egypt. Israel had to learn that what's needed for health, without water you get very sick and then you die. God is the one who provides health too. So the core of Israel's relationship with God is this demand that they obey the rules and God says, I will heal you when you do that. Now does that mean that all Christians are extremely healthy? No. No. Any more than all Egyptians are extremely sick. What it means is that in the final analysis, healing comes from God. And if you want to be ultimately healthy, like healthy in heaven, you have to trust God and walk with Him. And if you want to be ultimately sick in hell, you obey God, or you disobey God, and walk away from Him. So they obey God, and they come to Elam, or there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees. One of the commentators pointed out that we're not exactly sure where these places are, but it could be the case that Elam is only like three to five miles from Mara. Not far at all. And he was talking to he said, this commentator said he was talking to a friend of his who had traveled extensively in the Sinai Desert. And he said to this friend, This is so stupid. Israel's here complaining. They're at Mara. They have no water. And they just have it out with Moses. Where is water? Why didn't they just go on? It's only three more miles. And his friend said, You don't understand. When you're in the desert, when you're there under the baking sun with no water, you can't pick your legs up and go 10 feet. Never mind three miles. You're so burned out, desiccated, sucked dry that you just fall down on the sand and that's all you can do. Israel could not get to Elam without God's intervention. He's their healer and he heals them with the water of life here. That's true for us too. Well, why don't you just go on to the place of blessing? Why don't you just obey God? Get yourself out of your sickness. We want to say that to people. All the time. We don't understand how when you're traveling without water it comes to a point where you physically are depleted and you need God's healing. That's what Thanksgiving is about. Not camping in bitterness at Mara, but having God's refreshment and rest at Elam because you obey his rules. Israel says there's no water and God says here's the solution. Obey me. But first to help you obey me here's water. That's the grace of God. Again it's it's all over this narrative. Moses doesn't get the Ten Commandments at the burning bush and then bring them into Egypt and say okay here's Ten Commandments if you obey these God will let you out of Egypt. Rather, God brings them out of Egypt and then says, now you're free. Here are Ten Commandments. God brings them to Marah. They say, we can't do it. God says, here's water. Now get up with this water and obey me. Go on to Elam and be blessed. It's the Christian life. God saves us and then we start to sin and God says, no, obey me. Here's the tools you need, the health you need to obey me. Get up and in obedience go on to blessing at Elam. Thanksgiving is the holiday we celebrate at Elam. But we can only get there by being grateful even at Mara. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you gave Israel that water of life that they needed to get up and obey you. Lord, help us to obey you. Help us to pass the test as to whether we will walk in your law or not. Don't let us grumble this week or any week. Rather, help us as we stand at Elam, relax under the palm trees, swim in the water of life to know that you have provided, that you save us when we can't save ourselves, that you give us what we need when we couldn't possibly go out and get it. But once you've given us what we need, Father, you do expect us to use it to obey you. Not to grumble, but to be grateful. Not to complain, but to obey. Well, Father, we ask your forgiveness for wasting your good gifts. and We pray tonight that you would help us to obey. We ask it in the name of your risen Son. Amen.